This is uh, Time Enough, episode four, with me, Ed Oldham, and um, this week I've decided that we're going to speak to someone who is uh, relatively new to the Isle of Man, and uh, also new to Manx Radio. It's our uh, managing director, Chris Sully. Chris, welcome to Manx Radio, welcome to the Isle of Man. Ed, thank you very much, I'm having a great time so far. Well, first off, let's uh, start with, what's brought you to the island? So uh, the opportunity to come and join Manx Radio, which is a station I've always had great admiration for. It's, it's got great heritage. It's, it's, it's got, you know, true resonance for the island. I think island broadcasting services, more so than other community stations, and I use that term in its broadest context, have got real resonance for, for, for the audience. I think it's, it's something that people take close to their hearts in a good way and a bad way. And I think if I mess up in any way, it will be my fault. And I'm sure people will be hunting me down like a dog in the street. I'm aware of the heritage, and that was part of the attraction. It's a great team. It's a great place to live. And after 28 years doing my, my last job, I was ready for, for a new challenge and a new new um, sort of time to go forward. 28 years with the British Forces Broadcasting Service. You are, of course, the second person, the, the, certainly in my time, to come here to Manx Radio after Mark Tiley with, with that background. So where did your BFBS career take you? Wow, uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, we so I, the reason I joined BFBS, I was working in commercial radio in, in Manchester. Um, we were reading uh, liner cards, so you were literally taking a car from the front. You're listening to it was Key One Hundred Three, uh, Manchester's Greatest Music Mix. We'll be back with another five fabulous records after this, and you'd play five records that you played the day before. And I was bored, and a friend of mine was working for BFBS and said, hey, "Look, come along, join BFBS. You get to travel the world, meet some crazy people, do some crazy stuff, and then talk about it on the radio." And I thought that sounds like fun, so I joined, and within uh, a few months, I was doing some programs from our studios in Paddington in North London, and then I went off to Belize in Central America. Um, and it was very strange because I'd been freelancing up until then, and I went to—I was invited to the the staff summer party, and it was a hotel in London. And I went to the toilet, and the director of broadcasting caught me while I was walking out and said, "Oh, I've been meaning to talk to you. How do you fancy Belize six months starting September?" And I went back to my wife and said. I think I've just been offered a job in the toilet. She said, what did you do in there? I said, nothing like that. It was just, just purely and simply, you know, that's that's where we happened to get chatting. So Belize, uh, tw- uh, three times in total. Central America, just down from Mexico. Uh, Cyprus, the Falkland Islands for two years. Northern Ireland, Germany. And then, um, so we did that as my wife and I doing, doing that together as postings. Two, three, sometimes four-year postings. Um, and then I did uh, Afghanistan twice, Iraq, Kosovo and Bosnia as well. Well talk about some of those uh, places because that's really uh, quite a, a, a jaunt that you've had around the world <laughs> it's it? bearing in mind i thought i'd only be joining for i thought i'd join bfbs do two years see how it goes and then probably move on and 28 years later yeah it was time to move on i suppose with a job like that though because you're doing these different postings you do get the variety in that respect at least don't you new environments new places new challenges very much so and that was one of the great things about it you never really got the time chance to be stale somewhere Uh, and and if it wasn't you leaving then there was a turnover of other people so uh, you go somewhere like RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus and the station commander has only got six months left and you got to know them and you their way of working and what they wanted from you and their relationship with the MOD and and BFBS Uh, and then they'd be leaving and there'd be a new person, you'd start again, reset, uh, and then you'd be leaving and moving somewhere else. And that process just went on. That was that was our life for 28 years, which was great. But there does come a point, and we, we've done, with the exception of Canada, we've been pretty much everywhere that the FBS could have sent us. And I've got nothing against Canada where I'd love to have gone, but that wasn't in the offing. Uh, what was beckoning for me was, was a, a desk job back at our headquarters in Buckinghamshire. And I'd, I'd done that, and it was like, no, I want a new challenge. I want something different. The, the opportunity to come here was just too good. 
Now, often when people come here, it's a place which is quite a bit smaller than they're used to. But I suppose with your experience of being in the Falkland Islands, it's a bit of a almost like a step back up again. I mean, what, what's it like? I've seen I've seen footage, I've seen programs about the Falklands, but it's the sort of place that fascinates me: the remoteness and this idea that there's this tiny little British outpost in you know the southern atlantic south atlantic yeah, yeah right is. right near to, to south america it there. is basically a couple of hundred miles off the coast of argentina um which the whole politics of the thing in 1982 um when i first found out we were being posted there we were moved posted is obviously we like the military we are posted around the world with bfps so two years here three years there six months somewhere else uh, operational tours whatever it is when we were posted to the Falklands we left Cyprus to go to the Falklands and we were thinking oh my god this is going to be a wrench to go from uh, from, from that environment sunshine beaches that kind of life to living in this windswept rock in the South Atlantic but you know what actually and talking to military friends both there and since the Falkland Islands is the military's best kept secret it's an amazing place it's party central lots going on the locals are fantastic once they accept you, I think it takes a little time for them to kind of warn you, and they're, they're sussing you out, and that's fine, I get that, because every six months they're seeing new people. Uh, and, it, and it's the island mentality, isn't it? it, it very much so. Yeah. It's, it's kind of prove yourself. Come on, who are yeah. you? You're an incomer, prove it. Uh, uh, and um, it's very funny, because uh, the, the nickname that the uh, service personnel have got for the Falkland Island is, is Benny's, and it's a throwback to the TV show Crossroads, uh, and because they wear the woolly hats and stuff. So when... The forces first went there after 82, after liberation. They were calling them Bennies, and the locals hadn't, the Falkland Islanders, Kelpers, as they called themselves, had no idea why they were being called Bennies. Just a name the forces called them. Fantastic. And then BFBS TV launched down there. One of the programs we put on was Crossroads. They saw Benny. That's what they're saying we're like. So they were banned. The military were banned from calling the locals Bennies. So they started calling them Stills. Well, they still are Bennies, but they got their own back because they call us Wenis. When I was in Cyprus, when I was in Germany, oh, I when see. I... So, fantastic. But the, but the place itself, we loved it. It's, it is remote. Um, people talk about the Isle of Man being remote. Nowhere in comparison to, to the Falklands. When, when, as it was, the TriStar, now the Voyager aircraft, departs and flies back to RAF Bryce Norton, it's three, four, five days until you're going to see another aircraft. That's it. You are on your own. And that includes everything from medical emergencies, though the military will sort things out if it's serious enough to get you out of there, through to a bereavement in the family or whatever. You are stuck there. So when people talk about uh, you know the remoteness of, of the Isle of Man, yeah, there is an element of that. Of course there is. But, but probably by comparison, I would say at one stage, we ended up with the RF had three broken tri-stars on the ground. Um, they brought one down, it broke. They brought another one down with spares. That broke, but it wasn't the same bit. Um, and then they put a third one down, and eventually, after about four weeks of no mail and no fresh food, they chartered a 747 for Miami. So that's pretty remote. Um, so, yeah, and, and in terms of the town size and population, you know, you look at Douglas alone, you look at uh, Ramsey, it's bigger than Stanley, Port Stanley, as people still call it. And the population itself of the islands is relatively spread out because the clue is in the name. It's islands, isn't it? And there's, there's it is. quite a large number of them. There, really. are, there are two main islands, East and West Falklands, and then hundreds of smaller islands from places that people might have heard of if they remember 82, uh, places like Sea Lion Island uh, and those kind of places, through to literally a rock, places like Rockall. You know, there are tiny things with nobody living on them. The vast majority of the population do live in Stanley. Then you've got places like Goose Green, uh, San Carlos, which which is secondary, and then there are people in camp, as they call it, they camp anywhere out of town. The villages, the hamlets, those those places are just called camp. And as we arrived there in '98, they still had camp time, which was 
sometimes quarter of an hour's time difference from Stanley, which just got incredibly confusing if you were arranging a meeting or going to a party. Uh, but but they they got rid of that thankfully. How come that was still in existence? <laughs> was that just a hangover from when would that? Have been? Well, it would have been from time immemorial because in 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 the UK, in in England, Scotland, I guess here on the Isle of Man as well, the only thing that standardised time was when the railways came along because course, Bristol yeah. and London and Edinburgh and Birmingham had different times. But um, but then they had to standardise it, uh, and I guess the Falklands just never had that infrastructure, so it didn't need it. It's just camp time. Right, got to past twelve is midday. Uh, how does that work? Uh, so quite a few different things to get your head around, I imagine. And and you were saying there about the remoteness as well. I was just thinking, that, and, and again, without getting into the politics, because I, I don't really want to bother with that sort of thing on on this show. But uh, you were saying about the remoteness, and and that you know your nearest landmass is not exactly a particularly you know friendly or welcoming or accommodating one either. So you are very much relying on the mother country from thousands of miles away, aren't you? Absolutely, absolutely. You're absolutely right. The nearest landmass. Whilst I was there, there was an incredible story that uh, the the um, the radar sites, one of the radar sites, Mount Alice, uh, which itself is part of its job is to watch the skies for anything coming into the zone. And there was a Saturday afternoon where one of the um, scope operators saw a very slow moving target coming towards the Falklands and flagged it up to his boss and said oh, yeah, what's, what's this this was 1999 and the boss said oh, it's, 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 it's migrating bird it's too slow for anything else it can't be a jet anyway the, the, the scopey as they call them kept insisting oh this is something so they finally scrambled a tornado to go and have a look and it was an Argentine light aircraft pilot uh, flying a, a four seater aircraft bringing uh, what did he have 2,000 tea bags one for every serviceman and woman and some fresh oranges in case they weren't getting enough fresh fruit so they basically got him to land at MPA he took some photos and then they refueled him and sent him back on his way thank you for the tea bags so there are there are odd things like that that go on it's it's an amazing place and um, as we were saying, you know, quite a, quite a contrast to uh, to the other places that you've been to. I, I was struck as well by the fact that you were saying that you've been to places where it seems you know, there are obviously British bases, but then you've got this period of your career where I guess you're effectively in war zones as well. You were talking there about Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but there must be a difference, a contrast between oh, well, the setups and, yeah. and the environments and that. If, if you think, if you've ever seen the film Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, when we go away on dusty operational tours, it's much more like that. There's much more freedom to have a bit of fun, and we're much more about connecting families up who are disparate by distance, but also keeping the smile on the faces of those there. And there are times when things go wrong, particularly in Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, we were still taking fairly heavy numbers of casualties, uh, and your job is to to reflect that, but not to dwell too much because the the forces don't they they have to put a limit on that and there'll be a time when they go back in the in the mess or in the bar to to mark the passing of that person and, and remember them and, and whatever your job is to try and sort of slowly but surely and picking the time to, to bring it back up and to try and ease some sense of normality back to everyone else because for every every unit that's affected by something that goes on every uh, squadron or regiment that's affected by something there are tens of thousands of people who aren't directly affected and they don't want to be it sounds awful to say it, but to be dragged into that sort of that state of mind they've still got a job to do things move on so it was it was a balancing act um and i, I i'll be honest i was really privileged to go and, and, and be part of that it was it was incredible i'm gonna be wrong i was very nervous i think iraq was the worst place um the, what, what sort of period were you there so uh iraq was 2005 afghan was two years one in 2010 one over christmas and new year 2012 into 13 but Iraq was really odd. You used to fly into Iraqi airspace and then they would basically glide 
the aircraft into Baghdad, well not Baghdad, we flew into Basra. And so all the lights were turned out. They told you to put your body armour on and the helmet. And then they turned all the lights, you had to pull the blinds down. Every light in the aircraft, including the emergency lighting strip on the floor, was turned off. Uh, and, and you just sat there and there's just silence because they would basically throttle back. And the idea was to stop anything coming up and hitting you as you were coming in. Obviously, the aircraft's dark, you can't see it. And that was fine, but you kind of, as your eyes adjusted the gloom, you'd look around and you'd catch somebody's eye and just sort of... I remember, I remember talking to this sergeant next to me and just saying, they've made us put body armour on. If something really bad happens, that's not going to save me. The most likely thing is someone taking a pot shot from below with a small calibre weapon. I think I'd be better off sitting on the body armour, <laughs> bearing in mind where it's going to hit me. Of course. But, um, but it's, and then you land and you just feel like you've got control back and, OK, if something happens, you can hit the deck or whatever or you go to, to shelters. But... Yeah, absolutely. Working with, with the boys and girls there and feeling that you were really making a difference each day. Um, and, and yeah, having people come into the studio at the end of a tour and go, thanks, you guys have helped keep us sort of going through some pretty rough times. Yeah, that was lovely. It's good times. And so to all intents and purposes, it's kind of like a community radio station. In it's effect. exactly yeah. what it is. Nothing yeah. more, nothing less. It's a community station. And the expectations of what we do when we're in Germany, broadcasting to families or in <clears throat> Afghanistan or wherever uh, we have to go next in the world are very different so you tailor it to that but it is it's a community it's a, a community of interest and you're trying to reflect what they're doing and the brighter things and you're also very aware there's quite a responsibility you're very aware that the families back home are listening yeah because we're on DAB uh, across the UK and we're very aware that the families are listening to what we're doing and you're trying to project an image which is re- real to life but without some of the nasty bits because you know you've got a 14 year old kid listening and dad's out there so there were times when we were able to do things and i remember getting a lovely email once from a a lady who said thank you very much and i think her daughter was about 12 13 something like that and she said um she's been really upset since her dad was posted out to afghan and she's absolutely convinced something terrible is going to happen and whatever and this morning on the show this network program i was doing i was talking about the fact that i'd been out the night before and her dad was dressed as the back end of a camel in this fancy dress five kilometer run around the american helicopter compound and and i said well but i can do better than that i can put a picture up tell her to look online and it's just great you just you forget how much that stuff can mean to people when all they're seeing is the bad stuff on the news and then you're coming along and just actually it's, it's not all like that you know? And just getting to see a picture of their loved one as well, doing something that he would normally be, she, he would normally be doing if they were back in Germany or yeah. Aldershot, whatever. Yeah, he's always dressing up and doing stupid stuff. So yeah, it's nice. and and so when you're somewhere like Iraq or Afghanistan, you're based within a camp, within a compound. So there's that difference as well, that contrast between being in that camp, that secure place. As opposed to being in a well, in, in a home, I, I imagine yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, very noticeable. You're absolutely right. Uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, we were at Camp Bastion, which uh, was always compared to the size of Reading, which is great if you know the size of Reading, but it didn't mean much to me until I got there. It's huge. It was absolutely humongous. Just, I once there was the, the BBC had a brilliant thing on their website where you could type in any postcode and it would superimpose Camp Bastion over the top. And to give you some idea of how big that compared to London, I dropped it over Trafalgar Square one day, the centre, and it went from the Docklands in the east to Heathrow Airport in the west and from uh, the, the old Highbury Arsenal Stadium in the north down to Crystal Palace's ground in the south. It's, it's a big camp. It was a big camp. But then you had the smaller patrol bases and uh, checkpoints and everything else. And we got out to a few of those in Iraq more than Afghan because um, the, the transportation was harder in Afghan. But... Those guys, they earned their money. They absolutely earned their money. That was that was a different, different world uh, patrolling from there. Camp Bastion in particular, 
boosted things like an Italian pizza place and Kentucky Fried Chicken and goodness knows what else and whether you choose to use it or not. So it was a bit more of a home from home, those big bases. And the guys out on the patrol bases and the, the checkpoints would come into Bastion for a, a week's rest and recuperation to sort of recharge the battery. So yeah, I'm, I'm very aware it was a very different thing. I nearly got stuck once as we approached Christmas out on a, um, a smaller patrol base in Afghanistan because we got a helicopter out there. We were doing some Christmas messages and then it couldn't come and get us again. Ah, oh, this is going to be fun then, isn't it? Because um, I'm not entirely sure. But that's guys, I'm rubbish with a weapon. So I'm not bad with, I'm not bad with uh, the kitchen utensils. Point me in the way of the oven. Fortunately, we, we got out of there on a road move in the end. But Do you find yourself often in hairy or potentially hairy situations like that when you're in areas like that? There, there are occasions. I think the the... the 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 worst one I had in in those terms was in Kosovo. Um, they'd been a, the Brits had been up to well the French had been up the day before to close a lead smelting plant at a place called Mitrovica, which is right on a river that sits between the Serb North and the uh, Kosovo South, and uh, the, the NATO wanted to close it because it was poisoning the ground. Uh, well, it, there was no sort of health and safety things there, and it was doing lots of bad stuff. The French had been up the day before and um, had their backsides whooped a little bit, so they came out. The Brits went up the next day, and I went up to film it for BFBS TV and do some radio stuff. Um, was working, and I was filming through the camera. And when you work a camera, anyone that works cameras regularly will tell you you lose peripheral vision completely. You're looking through that ten degree arc of the lens. Yeah. And I was filming, and I was saying to the the soldiers who were with me, "It's amazing. The zoom on this camera is incredible. These guys look incredibly close." And when I turned. They'd pulled back. The Brits had pulled back. I was stuck with, and suddenly surrounded by Serbs who uh, were coming up, who are, you, who are you working for? And I thought, if I tell them BFBS, this is not going to end well. Wow. So I told them I was a freelancer and I was selling my pictures in Biograd and uh, anything. I said, okay, you can go. So I jumped back into the Land Rover, an unmarked Land Rover, and started driving towards British lines. And I'm thinking, now there are Brits with their guns pointing towards me, seeing a Land Rover that they don't know coming towards them and being used as a shield by some Serbian sort of aggressors as they were were at that stage behind them and I was thinking this is this isn't where I intended to be when I woke up this morning unfortunately I remembered um we had some perspex boards with union jack flags on and bfbs k4 written on so I slapped one up against the windscreen of the car so that the, the Brits, Brits could realized see it, but the Serbs behind they waved me on and I just drove through this sort of opening British line and, and got away but there was there was that was a fairly hairy moment that I just thought, yeah, this 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 is not going to end well today. Is it instinct just takes over in those situations? Adrenaline. adrenaline I think it's, yeah. it's absolutely adrenaline, and you you can train for those things, but you can't train for every situation. You just think, okay, all that was going through my head was, what's worse? Do I stop and risk going back to the other way, or do I keep driving? If I keep driving, I'm likely to get shot. And it was just at that point I thought, ah, we have these boards, and I did have to fumble around in the footwell of the passenger seat, but thank God I found one. And just thought this this is either going to work or it's not, and if it doesn't, I don't have Plan B. So please work. And fortunately, they did realise as I got closer, they could see the Union Jack, and must have just taken the risk to flag me through. Yeah, so I was very grateful at that point. Makes for a good story afterwards <laughs> when you get out. <laughs> oh, of those it does. Things, it, and I can embellish it more if you want, but I won't. <laughs> but um, funnily enough, years later in Belize, we were sitting in a, a bar, and I was uh, we, we were talking, you know, pull up a sandbag stories as military people and those associated do. And one of the guys said. Was that you? I said, what do you mean was that me? He said, we, in, our, in our records, the regimental records in London, is the story of how we left this journalist behind and it, blah, blah, blah. I said, it was. He said, oh, I'm going to go back and put your name into the, the records. And I said, well, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but <laughs> yeah, crack on. So, uh, yeah. 
do you end up crossing paths with people as you go around the world? Very much so. It's a very small world uh, forces, and you do meet. I think there's a theory in life, isn't there? Six stages of separation. Yeah, and I think six in the military. Seven, yeah, yeah. I think in the military, it's about three. Uh, if you don't know someone, then you go, "Well, you must," know. and then you realize, "Ah, you've got so, you've got a mutual friend." Yeah, you've only got to look on social media, Facebook or whatever, and you realize, "Ah, these people know these people know these people." So it's a very small world, and that's great. And we trained volunteers across the world we've always trained volunteers so from within the military community uh, serving personnel dependents husbands wives uh, and uh, the older children to come in and do radio and some of them only do it once and never do it again because it was just something they did to fill some time in the Falklands some of them will come back to you years later and say oh I did some radio in Kosovo years ago can I do it here in the Falklands yeah of course Canada whatever it may be and some of them have joined the FBS on full-time contracts or gone to the BBC and other things. So that's quite a nice element as well. And you're still keeping in contact with those people. So that's... That's good. Well, as you spend more time here in the Isle of Man, you'll find that here it's about one or two degrees of separation generally. <laughs> if you don't know the person, again, you're like going to know, you will know exactly. You'll know yeah. someone that knows them. Um, staying with a, a bit of a military theme, what I noticed on your uh, Twitter feed relatively recently is that uh, you've graduated as an RAF reserve. I have, yeah. I'm drinking from my mug at the moment that says, keep calm, I'm in the Royal Air Force. So <laughs> basically, I'd always uh, said to my wife that if we got posted back to the UK, if we weren't overseas, I would like to join the RAF in a media capacity. So doing my day job, radio, TV, online stuff, um, but in uniform. And so we did get posted back to the UK in 2013. And I joined the reserves and I said, right, I'm going to do it as an airman and see if I enjoy it. Because if I don't enjoy it, I'm not going to waste an extra period of my life to to graduate as an officer. Um, so I've had a, a great few years. I've been to Romania on an operation. I've been uh, to uh, Oman last October on Exercise Safe Surreal, doing these things. And the role that I do is, is twofold. So one is generating stuff for the RAF and a wider market. So for the radio side, I've had things on Radio 4 and elsewhere, which is brilliant um, on PM. And the other side of it is media minding. So when Sky or Manx Radio or anyone comes along uh, and we'll get the commander's line, what do you want to talk about? What are your red lines? What do you not want to talk about? And then, right, I need a story. The BBC, Daily Telegraph, Manx Radio, whoever it is, we need to give them something. They've, they've travelled this way. So you work with the commander. Some commanders get media and will give you stuff, and some don't. You've got to prize it out of them. And usually the line that, that wins it over is, if you don't give me something that I can use, or more specifically they can use, they will find it anyway. So then it's down to, once you've got something for them, it might be standing on a flight line and saying to them, OK, the camera, you see those helicopters over on the far right-hand side? Yeah, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, you can't say <laughs> they don't exist. Please don't film that way, and I will give you this other stuff instead. So there might be a reason, you know, they're, they're here from a ship and they're not meant it, well, not, they're not meant to be here, but that's being kept under wraps. And if you've if you've got that relationship, you know yourself uh, yeah. as, as a journalist. If you if you've got something to go back with the editor with, you've got a nice story that no one else has got. Everyone's a winner. So but the it, job is twofold. But it's striking that balance, isn't it, between trying to get a story. But also, particularly, I imagine in situations like that, maintaining that trust as well, because it's not like, uh, let's say, a more genteel journalism job where if you go against what someone tells you, you might get a slap on the wrist. Yeah. The circumstances and the possible repercussions for something like this are far, far greater and far there is, more deadly. Absolutely, there is a famous story. There's a, a guy that works for BFBS who's uh, he's called Christopher Lee, not the actor from the Dracula films and things, but Christopher Lee has been with BFBS since about 1837, I think, and uh, he still works for us as a, a freelancer. In the Falklands conflict, going back to the South Atlantic, in the Falklands conflict in 82, he was a lobby journalist in Westminster, 
and he got a briefing one afternoon that the Brits were going to attack and try to retake Goose Green the next day. So he asked the reasonable question that any journalist would, is this on or off the record? In other words, can I report this? Or is it just a briefing so that I know and we can prepare for... And he was told, this is on the record. On the record? On the record. <gasps> so Christopher, he queried it, and the guy said, no, this is on the record. So, uh, and this is documented, it's in various books and things. So yeah. Christopher reported this story. A colleague of his called Robert Fox, who still works as a journalist for the BBC, was embedded with the Royal Marines above Goose Green, waiting for First Light to go and attack Goose Green. You can only imagine how Robert would have felt at that point, because the Marines were all listening to their shortwave radios and all looking at Robert going... What the hell are the BBC doing? This is, you know, you might as well have given them like grid coordinates. You may as well have sent a flare up to yeah. see where we were. Yeah. Anyway, um, the attack happened the next morning. Years later, it transpired from the Argentine field commander who was there in Goose Green defending it. His quote was, "I didn't think the Brits would be stupid enough to broadcast on their national and international service what they were doing. I assumed it was subterfuge. <gasps> we defended the other end of town more, thinking it was a double bluff, and it turned out to be the truth." To this day, I don't know whether that was a double bluff or that's, that will be covered under the 50-year, 100-year. We'll probably never get to find out. But it was either an almighty cock-up or, or um, some, some, you know, subterfuge. Who knows? Incredible. But you can, I would imagine Chris Chris Lee must have bought Robert Fox a few beers the next time they saw each other for wow. a bottle of scotch. Indeed. Wow, that, that that's incredible. So... Um, there you are as, as an RAF reserve. Uh, these days, you you clearly have a, a love, a passion for flying. Then I do. I love flying. So, so yeah, just to finish that. I, I commissioned just before I came uh, here to the Isle of Man. I finally got my commission. I went to um, as a reservist. It's a much abridged course compared to the full time thing. But we ended up. There's lots of leadership stuff, and then there's lots of um, we go away for two weeks on exercise. So lots of camping out, and I feel I'm too old for that. I'm, I'm, I'm way too old for this malarkey. Freezing cold. We we. According to Who's Watch, you, you time during the week, we did send anywhere between 96 and 100 miles over five days with the backpacks and everything camping out. It was pretty cold. It was pretty wet on the Welsh border, pretty miserable at Nestle training area. But we got through it. And then the last part of the course is um, they threw you in with the full intake. And they've had four months of marching practice. We got four days. Day one on a tennis court out of everyone's way so we didn't embarrass ourselves. By day three, we were marching with the rest of them. And then there's the... Uh, graduation and the passing out we had a spitfire flying overhead at Cranwell which was incredible but no I do do love flying always have uh, love flying at a passion I've got my license to fly uh, light aircraft which I'm hoping to continue here at Ronald's way I've already been out with Stu Peters uh, fellow pilot and looking at um, sourcing use of an aeroplane and then hopefully uh, getting as much flying as I can as well and you've kept that up wherever you've else you've gone in the world yeah absolutely so Germany was fantastic German solutions to problems. Normally, if you go to an aircraft hangar, there's 10 aircraft in the hangar and yours is always at the back and you've got to move the other nine aircraft. Really frustrating. German solution, let's put all the aeroplanes on a big platter. So there was a huge turntable platter with 10 aeroplanes parked in it and you literally push the button at the front and yours span around to the front and off you went flying. Uh, even in the Falklands, managed to fly. There was a guy with a, a light aircraft there who let me use it so we'd get up and get flying there. Some interesting landings with the crosswinds, but yeah, it's, 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 it's been something that I've been... Very lucky to do. Cyprus was probably the best place to fly from. We could go off. We used to go to Beirut for a day because it was 40, 50 minute flying away from RAF Akrotiri. Uh, Rhodes. And Egypt was the other one. We did a trip to uh, Luxor and we flew down, landed at Alexandria, refuelled, and then flew down to Luxor, Valley of the Kings. And we thought that they would air traffic would push us way away from Cairo and keep us out of harm's way. They didn't. Straight off the top of the pyramids at 8,000 feet was just, that was the best days flying i've done as a pilot um 
that, that sounds was, astonishing. That was that was just looking down the pyramids and going, I learned a little grass airfield in Kent, and that's the pyramids down below us. Uh, that was mind blowing. Which myself and the, the co-pilot with the two pilots, just Cheshire cat grins, looking at each other like something from Wallace and Gromit, and everyone again just banking the aeroplane to look in and pinch ourselves. That is actually the pyramids we're going over. So, um, and then I was lucky through uh, BFBS, I managed to get a backseat, like a backseat ride in the Red Arrows uh, in '98, uh, I beg your pardon, no '98, just before we left to go to the Falklands. That was fantastic. Just. Backseat and actually got some hands-on sort of flight time with it. Then got a backseat in a tornado in the Falklands. That wasn't dual control, so I couldn't couldn't fly that one. But wow, the G and it was just mind blowing. It's felt like you've left your face behind when the thing took off. Yeah, I can. Well, I can't imagine. In fact, <laughs> it's the best fairground ride in the world, Ed. I can tell you that. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that 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 is that is. Uh... That is mind-blowing. So it's been a long-term passion of yours mm. in flying, yeah? Very where, much so. And you said you learned it at a little airfield in so Kent. So I did. Uh, originally, when I was still at school and doing my A-levels, uh, before I discovered pirate radio, uh, which I think we're going to come on to in a we second. Will, yeah. um, I, I wanted to be a pilot, um, and that was what I was looking at. At that stage, British Airways and people like that were still doing the sponsorship scheme, so potentially I could have done that. And But it helped if you already had a PPL. So my dad helped me, and I did Saturday jobs and paper rounds and anything else I could scrounge money from and got a flying lesson about once every two months. Um, and then when I finished school and everything else, a few years later, I got the, the license and finished that off. It was, I, by then, I'd moved away from the idea of it as a career. But, boy, just it's just... It's hard to explain. People go, it's a really expensive hobby. Yeah, it is. But if you take three, four friends with you, you can actually, the cost of flying, say, from, from Ronald's Way to uh, Newton Isles for an afternoon or to Blackpool or something, is actually less than a commercial flight right. if you're splitting the cost. Um, it's the freedom of it. Yeah, sometimes it's just nice to go up and burn a hole in the sky or go somewhere. But I'll give you one example of one of the reasons I really love flying. Working in Northern, Northern Ireland and there was uh, stuff going on at work and it was just really a rubbish time. Uh, one sunny afternoon, I think it was probably the one sunny afternoon in four years in Northern Ireland, I'm going flying. So I finished work at about three o'clock, went up to uh, Belfast International, took the aircraft out, went flying, flew down over Lisbon, where the base was, found the town, found the, the, the military base. And as I was looking at the military base, I was going, that little office at the end is BFBS. In that office is a little bit of paper, which is causing me all this aggro. And you look up and look at the big blue sky beyond and go, in the grand scheme of things, how much does it really matter? Not much. So and it's for, just that perspective. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, for perspective, that must be definitely. a really, really good thing. Definitely, definitely. You t- um, well, let's talk a little bit about your time in Northern Ireland then. What, what sort of period was that? That was uh, 2003 to 2007, eight, eight, yeah. So theoretically, we're talking about a period when things... Should have been much calmer post yep. Good Friday. Agreement. We still had Operation Banner, which was the big uh, British military operation that's been there since '69. Was still running until 2007, so we saw that and we got to go out to some of the um, the bases, the really remote bases that uh, wouldn't want to have been there, in places in South Armagh, across McGlen and Fork Hill that you could only get to by helicopter. So we went in there and, and saw what the boys and girls were living, the conditions they were living in, and what they were going through, and that was pretty. Yeah, that was that was pretty full on. Um, but then, yeah, Banner ended and. Normality came. One of the most interesting things we did, we, we moved BFBS from AM, medium wave, onto FM. And I got an email one afternoon from a guy who I didn't know, who just said, uh, we are putting together a group of community radio people who've won licenses here in Northern Ireland. We'd like you to come and join us. Our first meeting is on the Falls Road on Saturday afternoon. So I hit my him back and went, um, Falls Road, British Forces. Uh, and he went, change times, my friend. 
So I did go. I got a security briefing. I went along uh, and went to this meeting. Lovely people, really fantastic. And over the course of the next few months, I went to meetings uh, in the Falls Road Leisure Centre and in Newry and on Bogside in Derry, all the places that traditionally, you know, Brits and particularly associated with the forces it would, would not have been go. no go. Uh, and they yeah. did seem to have a, a nasty habit of outing me. So the first meeting, we sat on this table in this community centre with people, families running around and whatever. And they said, let's all stand up and talk about ourselves. I'm thinking, let's not do this here. Um, but we we did. And they, I said, I'm from... Yes. And they said, sure, is that the forces station? I was like, no, don't say that loudly. Um, but it was fine. It was absolutely fine. And then another occasion in Bogside, I went up to do... The, the guys asked me to go and do some training. Um, so I went up, drove across the Welcome to Free Dairy side into Bogside, parked the car up, didn't really know where I was going exactly. It was a bit hidden away. And these guys saw me and they were watching, standing having a, a cigarette. And they looked at me and, and they just went, are you the guy from Forces Radio? Oh, God, what is it? Will you people stop stop yeah. saying that? So like, but how, actually, how, how am I supposed to answer, answer this that? question? It was like, yeah. And they were fine. They were just lovely. And by the time I left Northern Ireland, I went to see the uh, the big boss, the general office commanding and said, but to let you know, I've been doing this. He said, we know, we've been watching you. Fine, I thought you probably had. Um, he said, it's, it's brilliant because at a time when banners ended and we're trying to reach out to the communities and we ended up doing uh, breakfast show competitions between a station in West Belfast, Radio Falsha, and BFBS. Joined up, we would join up for 10 minutes in the morning once a week and do these competitions. And we had taxi, uh, black taxi drivers in West Belfast winning CDs from us and stuff. And um, that was, to me, you know, it was great. He said, at a time when we're talking the talk, you're walking the walk. Is there anything we can do for you? And I said, yeah, I'd love to have a meeting back here and invite them here on a military base. And he said, make it happen. Get all the names and details. So did that. And the lovely thing about that was on the Saturday morning we did it, people came along from, from these stations in areas that you absolutely would not traditionally have associated in any way, shape or form with Brits generally, but certainly the forces came along. And of course, I'd forgotten because I'd gone to their stations in areas that I wouldn't normally have gone to in West Belfast and obviously been only a lookout and frightened about everything that happens and people question they were coming onto a military base which held demons for them and it was brilliant because at the end they just went wow it's just like normal here I was like well of course it is yeah, yeah. what did you expect well we thought there'd be people with guns walking about and there's not there's just kids playing football and people and it's just that perception thing so again anything that helped break that down and just uh, a little bit of normality so it was great to do that that was a really interesting particularly at the start when i wasn't too sure what i was going into walking into um the clonard mill at the back of uh falls road and just thinking this this isn't really sensible i was back to kosovo again but yeah. it was good i'm glad i did it and it was it's something i could feel quite proud of because we did something that wasn't happening at the time um, and it sounds like yeah it really did help to break down some barriers some, even, exactly even even on a small scale i think if some if, if you can one do person something like that exactly if one person engaged that wouldn't have done and i say taxi drivers in west belfast phoning up bfbs to enter a competition well that's progress to me right there that we've done something that wouldn't have happened and we would get winners for cds sometimes you say, wow you've won it well done fantastic i can send it out to you but there is a danger it might have a forces stamp on you know stamp on the stamp as it were uh, and ah, don't worry about it i'm not bothered about that okay um things have changed a bit then yeah sounds like it yeah so i think you know positively things things did change in our, in our four and a half years there things did change uh, but again what great people just just the a brilliant four and a half years of, of getting out and seeing some fabulous countryside and, and generally 99.999 percent of the population are just fabulous whichever side of the fence if you want to use that term they stand on because i'm not really a political animal and certainly not yeah. 
particularly religious and and so you just go out and take people as you find them yeah and i think generally that's what that's what most people are you got your belief i got my belief and i don't need to ram it down your throat you don't need to no. we can have a discussion if we want to but we'll agree to disagree and keep it civil exactly you know, as long as that can be done then uh, yeah like you say i don't think there is a problem with having a discussion from two differing viewpoints is there i think the problem these days is that and i'm not just talking about in in a northern ireland context i'm even talking about globally it, yeah. globally things have become so polarized haven't they and, and yeah. aggressive as well very much so and i think the other thing that's happened with particularly with social media is people tend to only follow twitter facebook instagram uh, feeds that agree with their political or sporting or whatever it may be yeah. allegiance the and bubble therefore, the echo chamber absolutely and it just reinforces what they believe to the to the exclusion of everything else and and it, that's dangerous that's really dangerous so you've got to try and open that out and that's where stations like manx radio and bfbs come in because it is that thing of giving a platform and trying to let everybody have a say and there will be things hopefully i would really hope if there's not we're failing there will be things that sometimes you'll listen to on manx radio and go who the hell is this why why are they giving airtime to that person that's the reason um, so you know whether it's uh, somebody expounding a flat earth theory because they've got proof absolute proof of it give give people airtime let them come on and talk about that doesn't you, know, you give balance you're not going to just sort of un- not challenge that yeah. uh, whether it's a politician or a flat earth society person or whatever give it airtime don't ridicule it but give them airtime let them propound their theory and then then let's debate it let's take it from there and if somebody gets wound up about that and wants to call the station why are you giving airtime that's that's our job yeah, as a public service broadcaster, yeah. you ringing up is the reason. Exactly, <laughs> you've just illustrated so, that point. So, why for do you us. think he's talking rubbish? Well, because this, this, and this. Okay, um, what would you say to that? And suddenly, you've got this dialogue. Two people that would probably avoid each other in the pub on a Friday night are suddenly engaging in conversation. I, for one second, don't doubt that we're not going to change either of them's opinion. That's not the point. The point is to put that debate out there and let people think. Oh, I never really thought about that before. Um, so, whether it's heavy subjects like the b word brexit or whatever over the pond or or whether it's you know lighter stuff i think everybody's got an opinion it's just giving giving a voice to that with all your experience that you've had so far and obviously coming to the isle of man after 28 years working in the british forces broadcasting service i imagine coming to the isle of man must be rather genteel by comparison so far it, it, life outside of work is work is is full on there's a lot going on there's a lot to do i'm I'm very aware of that it's a great team and what i'm trying to do i think i feel personally that um it's probably not been an easy place to work for the last few years because of things that have gone on external things that have gone on and i'm trying what i'm trying to do is is to try and find that balance and i think that's one of the nice things coming in is a, a neutral person that's sort of not had a dog in this race before and come in and i can talk to whether it's somebody from Tim Ward, whether it's uh, a business, whether it's people internally at the radio station, and just say, okay, where are we? What what do you want to do? How do you want this to shape up? I can't promise we're going to deliver everything to everyone because that's not practical. But but at least hearing that without a, a previous entrenched position. And I'm just finding at the moment I've, I've been meeting with various politicians uh, and the Treasury as our sponsor and, and other people and just trying to sort of let's find out where both sides are and, and how we got to where we are and let's see if we can't take this forward a little bit and, and, and to give some stability to all, not least the staff at the radio station who I think have, have, have taken a bit of a, a kicking over the years, shall we say. 
on and off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Outside of the station, how are you settling in here? Really well. Uh, so at the moment, I'm renting uh, in Douglas. The idea is uh, if everything works out, so uh, October time will be sort of the point at which uh, Manx Radio will hopefully decide they want to, to keep me, in which case that's fabulous. And my wife will move over from Hampshire and we'll settle here. We'll give us time to sort of look where we want to live. But at the moment... I'm renting a flat in Douglas, and that's working out fine. I'm getting to explore the island a little bit and uh, get a feel for the place. I'm look, really looking forward to TT. I've never been before. I've seen it on TV. No idea how I react, um, apart from jumping out my skin every time a bike goes past, I'm <laughs> are, sure. But are you a motorbike or road racing fan? N- uh, not to the extent that I've ever ridden a bike. I once right. went on somebody's bike who terrified the heck out of me, uh, and, and so I'm not a biker, but I enjoy it. Yeah, it's, I guess it's tied in with the aviation thing. I like air shows are my thing i do a bit like chris williams going along and hearing a merlin engine spitfire go ahead or whatever so i'm sure there's going to be an element of that i think it's just it's so fast i mean not being funny you, if you stand in the wrong place what was that he's gone uh, yeah so and i suppose as well you know because some someone might think well how can a guy that's used to flying planes be you know put off or scared by uh, being on the back of a motorcycle i imagine there's a big difference between doing a few hundred miles an hour up in the sky to doing even, doing it around his yeah even just 100 miles per hour on, around on a, a hairpin bend no yeah, exactly yeah. and I, the best example i can give you of that we used to mention earlier and we used to fly over to beirut for a day or for a couple of days and we'd, we'd arrive at beirut airport and we'd just say okay taxi driver we want you to take us to this hotel and tomorrow i want to book you for the whole day and i want you to take us to this place this place and this place and anywhere else you can recommend uh, and you'd get chatting them during the day and that would be great and they'd, they'd always say so if you're flying over here yourself why why don't you drive well, I've seen the way they drive in Beirut, so that's not happening. But similar thing. It was just, yeah, you know, you know your own limits, I think. And uh, fair play, hats off to the people taking part in the TT and the sidecar because there is no way on God's green earth I'd be doing that. Are there any uh, things that you are, you know, besides the flying anyway, looking forward to getting your teeth into, getting involved in outside of work? Do you know what? The biggest thing I think will be um, being part of a community and not being moved after two, three, four years. Yeah putting down some roots and, and, and finding what you want to do. Tennis is a big thing. I love playing tennis. I love running. I love tennis. I've noticed a tennis club. I must give them a call and find out how that works. Well, I know how it works, but you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. in terms of joining up. Um, so that, but uh, to be honest, at the moment, I'm still finding my feet. And then it will be, okay, to be part of a community, to find a nice pub that you can go in and drink and meet some people that become friends and whatever else. And, and they're not leaving after two years and you're not leaving after two years. And it's like, we will still be here in 10 years, probably having the same conversation and <laughs> still <laughs> still moaning about the same thing. So, yeah, that's overall, that's the big thing. Um, certainly, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world to live. You asked earlier about the Falklands, um, scenically. Very similar. Okay. Uh, the rugged coastline, yeah. the nice beaches, the remote areas. Not so much in the way of built-up stuff in the Falklands, but but certainly if you fly, if I was to take a, a photo of some of the Falklands beaches, you'd look and go, well, that could be anywhere on the Isle of Man. It could be Jerby Beach or whatever. But uh, yeah. You've spoken about your wife. Um, you have family, children as no, well? No children. Didn't happen for us, sadly. Right. But I've got a wife, yeah. So she's uh, in Hampshire at the moment, living in the house in Hampshire. Uh, she works as an administrator. If everything works out, she'll come over. And, uh, you know, this will be our life from then on in. But, uh, and and she's obviously shared these experiences with you around she has, the world. She has. I think... Um, was she a willing sharer yeah, of I, th- I think I was going to say, I think when she signed up, when, when we first got to... We've known each other since the 80s, and then we got married finally 10 years later in, in 98 in Cyprus. Uh, and I think uh, when we first started travelling, I didn't... Well, I didn't know that I particularly knew what we were getting into. She certainly didn't. Thankfully, 
I've got a good one there because she, she buys into it and she, she loves it and she takes the rough with the smooth and by the rough I mean some of the places we be, uh, we've been, some of the, the, the houses we've lived in, whatever, have been a bit sort of, yeah, to get as you find it. Um, but she's thrown herself into it and we've made, the one thing with the forces, and I'm sure it's going to be similar here with the community, there are some friends we've made for life, particularly... Yeah. Um, Particularly in the operational teams, but even the even the, the the nice places like Cyprus, there are people you meet who just become people that you know that you can both ways you can absolutely write. It doesn't matter what happens in life; that person will be there for you, and vice versa. And that that's special. Now, you know, I'm hoping to get that and and not then be living on the other side of the planet to that person. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked, we've spoken a lot about your moving around and, and the various places you, you've been to and how you've ended up here. But where did you start out? You mentioned Kent, so is that where you were born and raised? Yeah, it was. I was born in a place called Dartford, most famous for the tunnel, the, the tunnel, bridge, and the Rolling Stones. Yes, um, Mick yes. and Keith, the Dartford boys, and Dartford have finally got around to putting up a blue plaque at the railway station. That's as far as it goes. You go to Liverpool. How much Beatles stuff is there across the whole Liverpool? Absolutely, Reconstructed yeah. cavern clubs and everything else. Dartford, a blue plaque at the railway station. Nothing else. That's strange, Nothing. isn't it? Madness. Mad- particularly as the Rolling Stones are still going. Yeah. And there are Americans in particular coming to the town of Dartford to have a look around and there's nothing here. No, there's a blue there's a blue plaque. How do you? There's a blue <laughs> plaque now. Get your photo taken by that. But Mick Jagger's house was about half a mile from where I, where I was born. Uh, nothing to mark it. It's just a house on a street on a place called East Hill in Dartford, uh, similar with Keith Richard. There is a Mick Jagger's old school, the grammar school in Dartford. There's a Mick Jagger centre, which is a, an art centre, and they have concerts and things. Beyond that, you wouldn't know the connection with the town, um, which is sad. But Jagger once said of Dartford, it's a great place to, it's a great place to come from, but you wouldn't want to go back there, <laughs> which, which to me just brilliantly summed it up. It... it, it I think as a kid, you think wherever you come from is the best place in the world. And then later on, especially if you travel a bit, you go, actually, there is a big world out there and there's other stuff and other places which are nicer or whatever. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't diss the place in that way. It, no. was, a great, it was a great place to come from. Still got family and friends around there. Could have moved back there. No, it's too, it's too, it's too polluted more than anything because mm. the M25 runs around the edge of the town and the pollution from that now on a still day is is eye-watering and watering and choking really really and so you come to one of the other managers go hey, do you know what i'll i'll take this it's fine. So. <laughs> do you go back to dartford much my uh my mum sadly passed away last june um my dad lives with my brother down in devon now so i've not got uh, immediate family but still got relatives around there and some friends so we do yeah we we call back in there the, the most time i spend in dartford tends to be um on a friday when I was living in Hampshire and I was travelling up to do the Radio Caroline weekends, Radio Caroline North weekends with Banks Radio from the Ross Revenge and I'd be stuck in traffic on the M25. That was probably the longest I've spent in Dartford in years <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> well, um, well, we'll move on to Radio Caroline in just a moment, but um, something that I'm always interested in, in particular with people, I've not really mentioned it, covered it that much with the other ones so far, but... Um, what what sort of period did you grow up in and what sort of music were you wow. into when you were younger? So, so yeah, okay. So at that point, the, the, when when I was in my teens and that, that stuff, it was the early 80s, so we'd moved out of punk. I missed the punk thing. That was slightly too early for me. I was only talking about this with someone the other day. If everyone who claims to have been at the, the uh, Sex Pistols opening gig at the 100 Club was actually there, it would have had about 15,000 people there as opposed to the 78, whatever it was, that were actually there. So I missed punk. Uh, it was... New, new um, 
new wave, the whole sort of that that period was coming along. You had the Jiranis, you had the pop. I think musically it was a really healthy time because whatever you liked, it was covered. Um, so there were there were the, the rock bands, there were the prog rock bands like Genesis and stuff were still around. If that was your thing, there was a really healthy. I was into dance and soul quite in okay. quite a big way, so I liked that. That was really healthy. Everyone would go to the record shops and try and get the first, be the the person that got the only American import of the new track from whoever it was. Yeah. That that was my uh, Saturday spent doing that, which was which was great. I like rock as well. Um, but yeah, so I I, I I once flirted. I got a Soul Boy wedge haircut when I still had hair, <laughs> and decided after a few weeks that wasn't going to work. Uh, that wasn't a great look. Um, but yeah, so musically there was there was real diversity going yeah. on, and it was it was a great time to be around music. I think people look back at the eighties a little bit now and dismiss it as just being a bit plastic pop. But there wasn't. There was some great stuff around and some great live concerts. With any decade, I think it's there's there's the sort of the mainstream, you know, sort of prevailing idea of what it was like, the pop idea of what it was like, and you know, the mainstream then, fashion in that. But in every single decade, once you scratch that surface, there is. All sorts of diverse, of yeah, interesting stuff going on. So, what sort of bands in in particular? So, uh, one of my favourite bands, I must admit, I still like them, and they're actually coming here later this year. Is Squeeze? Um, oh, okay. Love yeah, Squeeze. Yeah. I think they're one of the bands, a bit like Madness, and Madness is another one because to listen to the music, it just sounds like yeah, it's a great little pop song, catchy. When you actually look at the lyrics, amazing stuff, really amazing stuff. Squeeze did a song called "Some Fantastic Place" for an album of the same name, and it was all about a friend of. Glenn Tilbrooks, who passed away. Uh, and it's if you actually listen to the lyrics, bearing that in mind, um, I have hope that one when it's my time, she will be there to show me around the stuff. They're really quite poignant lyrics, and they're quite clever. Madness, very clever lyrics. I'm as honest as the daylight is long. The longer the daylight, the less I do wrong. Clever stuff, really yeah. good wordplay. So I like bands who are clever with with lyrics. Uh, I like, but at the same time, not too pretentious. I have to admit, I was never that into the Smiths because I just right. found Morrissey quite depressing and it was don't get me wrong some of the music was nice but i would never have identified myself as i was always more into the let's have a good time if i'm going to a concert i want to have a good time it's costing me x amount to go there i want a couple of beers with my friends and to have a good time and come up with a smile on my face rather than spending the shoegazing was a big thing in the late 80s yes of the course shoegazing scene and just yeah, that yeah, thing yeah. and yeah not so much not so much. my shoes were never nice enough so <laughs> you know that was to do with um the fact that this, the the people that played in those bands spent all their time looking down at their pedal boards yeah, exactly. because they had so pushing much, exactly pushing so pushing much pushing going on yeah 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 <laughs> that is actually elements of that scene I do really like but then I wasn't there at the time so, exactly, so you know yeah. I'm, I'm coming at it uh, later on so you've you've alluded to Radio Carolina a couple of times so far. Um, I mean, this is you know, this is something that's very much involved here at Manx Radio, like you say, the, the Ross Revenge does, does the Caroline weekend, North weekends, Caroline yeah. North does the, the weekends from here. Um, was that another sort of link to the island? It was very much so. So it put you? Manx Radio back on my radar big time, yeah. um, because uh, obviously the link ups we were doing and uh, meeting Chris Williams, and even that didn't put me off. I um, <laughs> so still sort of stuck with. Sorry, Chris, if you listen. Uh, no, it, it was fantastic. So I, I met. Chris, Chris came out for one of the weekends with Mark, and it was great to see Mark, who I'd worked with. Mark had been my boss in Germany, Mark Tiley, uh, back in the early noughties. Mark Tiley, right? So it was great to see Mark again. It was great chatting to Chris and, and talking about Manx really because I'd, I'd heard the station and obviously I'd listened, particularly online now. But I remember hearing the medium wave service of Manx Radio as a kid. It would carry down to Kent. I was yeah, I was a radio enthusiast and anorak as they call them, mm-hmm. and I'd tune around and in between listening to Caroline and Luxembourg and whatever else was out there, I'd on certain nights catch Manx Radio and just wow. 
that's man, that's coming from so far away. It's coming from this island in the Irish Sea. How cool is that? Really exotic. Uh, no, absolutely. And yeah, as, yeah, as a, as yeah, a yeah. An eight, nine, ten-year-old kid, absolutely, yeah, and it just really, yeah, it captured my imagination. So bumping into Chris uh, and seeing Mark again and talking about Manx Radio, and then coming over and seeing the station and seeing what a great uh, organisation it is and how much it's still held dear by lots and lots of people. Yeah, great opportunity. So um, yeah, Caroline definitely brought that back into focus. And so, and when when did you take? take that up when you start getting involved with Caroline so that was uh, not long after finishing school I did my A-levels um, and I'd already been, so I'd started off in hospital radio which ironically is also where I met Diane my wife oh, okay. uh, she wasn't my wife at the time obviously I was still <laughs> at school um, but yeah so that's where I met her and uh, we became friends um, and I from there I'd moved to a cable station in southeast London a station called Radio Thamesmead um, and then I did some pirate radio in London I did uh, stations like Skyline and Solar, which is still going, a dance station, and Kiss when it was still a pirate station. Uh, wow, Gordon, so you were involved Gordon in that period. It was still a pirate, absolutely. And one of my favourite stories from that period was um, the DTI, the Department of Trade and Industry, which at the time was under the post office, and their job was to hunt the pirates down and catch them. But you had to be caught live on air. And there were occasions when I was, all of the studios were in a place in south southeast London called Camberwell. It was known as Pirate Alley. Right. Blocks of flats with aerials sprouting yeah, out the yeah. top and uh, running from the authorities and stuff. Oh, boys own adventure stuff at 18 19 but um one of my favorite stories there was uh, the dti every time they were doing a raid on a pirate would rent vans from the same place in <laughs> in southeast london and what they didn't know the guy behind the counter was one of our djs so every time they came in certainly government cards yep sign that slight bit pay he'd phone stuart the boss at skyline radio and say stuart don't know who's getting hit but someone's getting hit so all of the london pirates would go off air and they couldn't do anything then. It took them six months to work out. It was this car rental place they went to every time to rent vans to confiscate equipment that was, was seeing the pirates go. So I did that. That's magnificent. It was it was great fun. It was <laughs> I remember watching a documentary about it a couple of years ago about that whole pirate scene in London. And it was, it was fascinating seeing just, you know, the initiative of these people and what they would, I know it was illegal, but let's just put that to yeah, one yeah, side exactly. for a moment. You know, the initiative <laughs> of these people and, and, <laughs> yeah. and just, and, but also, you know, the platform it gave them, the way that they were able to then take the experience that they got on, like you, for example, and go on to have a career. I mean, let's not forget the likes of Trevor Nelson started in absolutely. these places yeah. as well. Yeah, so many they? people, absolutely. Trevor Nelson is, is a great example of it. Uh, Pete Tong, same yep. thing. Uh, involved in the stations but, but the, the stations were community stations sometimes it was community of interest because of the music so mm-hmm. it would be Alice's Restaurant was a rock station in London that was on for years Jackie was a, a true community station in southwest London Skyline was a community station that pitched itself against Capital Radio um, but it was a community station in terms of lots of, we did lots of stuff with them for the community then there were out and out dance stations that were promoting the rave scene that was starting yes, to grow of course. on the M25 warehouse raves and everything else yeah. so that was going on but generally at that stage in the mid to late 80s I only ever met people who were doing it because they were passionate about either the music they were playing on the uh, lots of uh, reggae, dub reggae stations yes. and whatever just uh, Judge Dredd and people like that doing just awesome uh, even as a listener who didn't know much about the music wow you yeah. certainly you got a, a good heads up on that I remember, I remember hearing as well in this uh, in this documentary or seeing they were saying that certainly with stations like Kiss they were set up as well because you know the, the music of the black communities was not being represented to any great extent on the mainstream radio. It, it was almost like an echo of what happened in the 60s in a way when it BBC very- refused to play the pop stuff. So the pirates did. You're you absolutely, know. you've nailed it. And that's exactly what happened in the 80s. So the, the, the more specialist genres, so I talked earlier about going to the record shops and buying 
you know, an import or whatever, there were stations that played just upfront dance imports. The worst mistake you could make on those stations was to have a hit because the moment you went top 40 with something, you'd never be played again because they moved on because they, they were trying to discover new and fresh, a bit like John Peel did, to be honest, on, on, on Radio 1 uh, for years. Um, so you had that, but it was absolutely you're right so you had reggae stations you had yeah soul stations out and out dance stations r&b all r&b yeah, absolutely yeah. in the early days before r&b was a the huge thing it's become yeah. now that was where people first got exposed to it and it took a while and then stations like capital radio in london and radio london the bbc station glr as it became started taking notice and sl- so tony blackgo and suddenly egg hey, was tony would come along and start doing a show a dance show because they, oh, we've got to do something because we're missing an audience. Uh, and people like Gordon Mack, who started KISS, were, were absolutely pioneers. They they, yeah. they saw a hole in the market. The sad thing was, I remember talking to him when when KISS became a legal station and, and saying to him, it will never be the same. Yeah, It will never be the same because it can't be. It's got to be more mainstream to, 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 to have that appeal and, once and get the advertisers. Yeah, and, I was going to say, once you're beholden to genuine commercial interest, that makes a big difference then doesn't it, does. it? Yeah. yeah yeah you have to start making compromises otherwise to. it's not going to work it's not you. it's not going to be a commercial success so different levels but but boy what a great time so so i did that for uh, a period of time messed up my a levels which was the, also the end of the flying career it's all neat it's all dovetails perfectly um and a friend of mine uh, at the cable station i uh, was making a demo tape one afternoon to send it off and see if i could get a gig on commercial radio came in and said, and I didn't even know, he'd worked on Radio Caroline in the 60s uh, as Jason Wolfe. His real name was Chris Boskill. And Chris said to me, uh, um, I'll take it to Radio Caroline. Give me a copy. I was like, oh, it's not ready yet. And he just grabbed this cassette and said, oh, don't worry about it, I'll take it. Long story short, I got home from work one day on a Monday evening. My mum said, oh, um, Caroline called. I said, Caroline who? Who's she? <laughs> I, I seriously thought, I don't, yeah, know, yeah. I don't know a Caroline. And she said, not, no, it was, it was one of those classes, not Caroline, Radio Caroline, you know. I was like, oh, okay. So I met the guys on the Wednesday evening. They came to the house. Um, they were down, it was funny, because they were in Dartford anyway, liberating, borrowing, which word would you use, some bits from the back of Littlebrook Power Station uh, that were being given to them by someone that worked. They didn't take the power supply off, but they were, they were being donated some things for the, uh, for the generator out on the Ross Revenge. And they met me. And by Friday evening, I was going out to the ship um, as, well, I thought, using my real name. And this... this I was going to say, this is where we can bring in, because on Twitter, I've noticed, you are not Chris Sully, as I was introduced no. to you, as you are in the Manx Radio building. Absolutely. You're Chris Pearson, so exactly. why is that? It's double life, avoiding the tax man. No, I'm not. Um, what it is, it's, so, so going out to Radio Caroline as a 19-year-old, sitting in the back of a, a van going down to Ramsgate to go to the ship. And the guy said, what name are you going to use? I said, well, Chris Sully. Why not? I said, you can't. It's a pirate. There's three, three months in jail and a £3,000 fine if you get caught. Ah, okay. Well, I can't change my first name because that'll just get going. Phil, Phil, Phil. Alan, Alan. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to be turning around. Uh, so I kept Chris. And then I was looking around in the back of this van. And there was a cardboard box. And on the cardboard box was written Pearson's apples. So I went, <laughs> I'll have that. So that's, that's Chris, Chris Pearson. That's how he was, was born. born. That was was born that time. And then I just kept it. So when I finished Caroline and I moved on to commercial radio and then eventually BFBS, I just kept it. It was just easier to use. And it was quite nice, actually. Um, I'd not changed it legally. Sully is my name. That's on my bank card and tax and everything else. But having a different name was useful because it's a bit of an act. You kind of go into a studio and just do stuff. So I would yeah. go on to stage and do stuff as Chris Pearson that I wouldn't dream of doing as Chris Sully. It's like, oh, no, not doing that. It did lead to brilliant confusion in the in the bfbs world because we get moved somewhere new and um, my wife would get a job and people would say so you're diane sully 
but you're married to Chris Pearson. Is that your maiden name? No, it's Chris's name. Yeah, but he's Pearson. No, he's Solly. So what's your maiden name? Wiseman. So where does where does what is Pearson? It, yeah, mass confusion. Great film. Um, yeah, it's like like you say, it's, it's like having a persona, isn't it? Like it is. like a, like an author would have a pen name almost. Or it's something. exactly that, and, and, and it, it, I don't think it's as common anymore in in particularly radio, but it certainly was back in the the eighties. Many many people used different names sometimes because their own name didn't scan that well for for the good old jingles. Yeah, you know. Brian Cuthbertson, and there's probably you're going to tell me now a good broadcast in front of yours is Brian Cuthbertson, but that wouldn't necessarily work well as a jingle. I'm just going to have to give Brian a ring about this. I'm Brian, he's, he's slagging you off. He's having a go, Brian. He's having a go. Um, but yeah, so sometimes people would change it for that. A friend of mine, uh, BFBS, who's now left, he is a pilot, ironically, um, his real name was Neil Travers, but he worked at a station and Dave Lee Travis was working there, and the boss said, It's too close. You'll have to call yourself something else. So he chose Neil Carter. There were various reasons people did it. For mine, I'd say it was just. <laughs> the, the avoidance of a jail sentence, yes. which seemed reasonable. So, so obviously, yeah, Caroline was still actually a genuine pirate station yeah, at the time. So. 1985, so we, the Ross Revenge was anchored 15 miles. If you took a compass out and swung 15 miles from Clacton and 15 miles from Margate, just a little bit beyond that was, was where we were. So in the North Sea, just outside the Thames Estuary there, really. And it would it would get a bit blowy and a bit cheeky at times if there was a northeasterly wind, uh, northwesterly wind, beg your pardon, then it would really... It would move the ship around a bit, but apart from that, it was a big old 280 foot long fishing uh, drop sided fishing trawler, so it didn't really move much. A lot of fun, I imagine. Ah, 19 years old and let loose. And again, I still remember so clearly, uh, arrived at the ship at about midnight uh, and climbed, climbed up the ladder. And just remember to this day, and whenever we go back to the ship, I still sort of in my mind go back to that, looking up at this huge mast swaying around in the, in the dark, the light at the top of it swinging around seeing Caroline and the bell painted on the side and just think, oh my God, I'm actually, I've made it. I've, I've, I've arrived. I've, I've grown up listening to this station and, and here I am. I'm actually going to, and went in, met the guys, had a cup of tea, got to bed at about five in the morning. They said, fine, it's Saturday morning. You won't be on air till Monday. Find your sea legs over the next couple of days. And about six hours later, there's a frantic knocking on my cabin door. Oh, somebody's ill and you're going to have to do a program <laughs> midday Saturday. So I got out of bed. A guy called Nick Richards, who now works in, in Ireland, showed me, this is the desk, this is how you do this, this is how you queue up a record on, on the ancient turntables. On a wobbly ship. Yeah, on a wobbly ship. Do you want a tea or a coffee? And that was my training for going on air on Radio Caroline. And how did you fare? Yeah, not too bad. Um, yeah, I mean, I listen back now. There are some audio recordings. I sound incredibly terrified. I sound a bit like Kevin and Perry. Thank you, Mrs. Patterson. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a bit like that. But yeah, it's sort of, I did eventually find my sea legs. and It, it was great. Good film. It sounds like you've had a career where you've had to be prepared for anything and be prepared to say yes to anything at any moment. And that's why I feel ready for Manx Radio now. But it is it is true. And it is I think you know it's difficult. I think in life sometimes you're given opportunities and it's really easy to think of a hundred reasons why you shouldn't do something. And it's finding that one reason why you should. And I think to me, the biggest thing is regret for not trying something. If you get an opportunity, that's the one piece of advice, you know, if we'd have had kids, it would have been if you've got an opportunity, do it, because you might never, ever, ever get it again. And if it doesn't work out, who cares? Always have the fear in your pocket to come home, whether that's from New Zealand or uh, from Onken. It doesn't matter. Always make sure you can get home. But beyond that, grab it. Grab that opportunity, because the worst thing has got to be uh, sort of hitting 70, 80, 90 years old whatever, and thinking, I wonder what would have happened if. I wonder what would have happened if. Who knows? You've actually sort of preempted the end of the program there, Chris, with that, because I, I've been finishing these podcasts so far by asking my guest what one little bit of 
advice they would give to someone out there or or just what they have learned as they've gone along their journey so for you that that's number one is it? yeah that's number one and follow closely by don't eat yellow snow but i think i stick to the uh, the first one more closely because i think it it's it served me well and certainly people that you know i've met and worked with them the people that inspire me as friends and as as colleagues are the people who who aren't afraid to try something take yourself out of the comfort zone i hit the age of 50 and could quite easily have gone right okay i'm going to put carpet slippers and pipe and sit at home not quite but um and it was right, okay, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to join the RAF and, and doing my basic training alongside 18- and 19-year-olds and, and leopard-crawling through the snow at Bramley training area in January wasn't exactly my idea of fun at the time. But the part, it was part of the reason I did it, because it's I want to push myself. I want to see, can I do this? Who knows? It leads to a rich and varied life experience by the sounds of it. Definitely, definitely. And, and I wouldn't have done half the things. Ironically, my whole start on hospital radio also came from from grabbing an opportunity stupidly i look back on this now i know it was a mistake school skiing holiday end of day one they told us if we wanted to that we could carry on sidestepping up this little slope and doing a snow plow to come down and my mate tim and i being the sort of anarchist that we were decided that was boring so we we got a chairlift and went up this slope and i could hardly stop as i proved in the next 30 seconds and careered off tore the ligaments in my knee uh, spent two days hobbling around and then decided my mum and dad would be really upset because they'd spent a lot of money on this holiday and I should I should probably ski. So I skied for the rest of the week, made it even worse. I came back, my knee was like a barrage balloon. And mum said, what's wrong with your knee? Nothing. And I ended up in hospital having an operation, heard this hospital radio thing and thought, oh, that sounds fun. And that is that is literally where it came from. That's how I got involved. That's incredible. So yeah, an, an accident and doing something you probably shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> There's a phrase, lucky break, and although I didn't break it, but it was absolutely that. Because if it hadn't have been for that, if we'd not gone up the slope, I absolutely, well, I probably, who knows, but I wouldn't have damaged myself enough to go into hospital. I wouldn't have heard hospital radio, wouldn't have decided that, wouldn't have ended up. Who knows where it would have taken me? I might have got a proper job, but who wants that? <laughs> you wouldn't have had as many interesting stories to tell. <laughs> well, not. Chris Sully, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me here on uh, Time Enough. That's been a, a truly fascinating chat. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ed. It's been great. Thank you.